Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are continuing on in a pretty uh, long series or a group of series throughout this year where we are going to spend so, so, so much time talking about Jesus. And there's a reason that we're doing that. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke a lot. Um, and I just, I pause here really quickly to say, you can use that QR code again for this if you want to. You guys, if any of you don't have a Bible, um, like a physical Bible, Bible apps are awesome. And um, I, I love mine. You can switch versions. I recommend the U version if you like to read or listen to scripture on your phone. But if you don't have a physical Bible and you'd like one, um, please reach out, use that QR code. I, we would love to talk to you about um, how you want to use your Bible and help find the right one and, and gift that to you if you don't already own one. But we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke, and we'd love for you guys to be uh, spending some time reading in your own uh, course of the weeks as well. And part of the reason that we made this decision to spend so much time this year talking about Jesus as portrayed in the Gospel of Luke is because the honest truth is that sometimes Christianity can mess things up. The church can mess things up. This is the truth of it. People can look at a faith journey and think like, it sounds like it's a place where there's going to be a whole lot of set of rules I need to listen to. Uh, Christians can wrongly be automatically associated with worldly political views, and, and that's not true. Uh, those things aren't, you know what I'm trying to say. Like Christians have political opinions, but they're not linked to faith necessarily. People make a lot of assumptions about the church and Christians, and because we, we have messed things up before. That's just the truth. It's happened. We've also done good things before, but what we're doing in this year and why we're spending a lot of time on this journey is because we believe as Christians, we want to be formed to live, a, to bear a living witness to people who follow the way of Jesus. Let's strip away some of the stuff that's in the news streams and everything else. Let's be people who are living out this radical life that Jesus talks about. This is the stuff we want to shape us so that we can be people of radical love and justice and really, really good news beyond any news cycle that's going on in our world today. This is the stuff to shape us as the church. And we want to be formed more and more by God's spirit into people who are living this way. And that's what we want the scriptures to help form in us. So as we gaze at these passages, as we ponder these words and stories about Jesus, I just encourage you, for some of you, you've heard these words a lot of times or read them a lot of times before, and they can kind of just become really familiar. But, but this is a time to pause and re-look at them. For some of you, this is the first time you've heard this, and you're going to have a lot of questions. That's awesome. Like, ponder those, too. Let's talk about that stuff. Wherever you're coming from, this is our chance to go deep into all that Jesus said and did, because the truth is that in all that Jesus said and did, there almost always was something deeper than what we see at surface level. Richer, deeper, better. Um, and these are countercultural formational messages that we want to be just seeping in. So there's a whole lot to talk about in any of the Gospels. And so we're going to be moving along. And this is where I encourage you to read between the passages that we're covering on Sunday mornings. But I have some catching up to do. So last week, we were still in the phase in the order of the Gospel of Luke, where um, Jesus has just launched his public ministry and now begins a series of incredible radical teaching. And this is what the people around him, as they're witnessing this movement that's happening, they're like, their minds are being blown by the things being said by this person who has 
declared himself to be the son of God, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy happening here among you now. And now his words are are really radical and, and people are listening. They wanna check more of this out. Remember last week we ended with this moment where Jesus opened up the scroll in his whole hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth. And he just slow down a little. And he said, this is being fulfilled today in your midst. The kingdom you've been waiting for, it's here. And some of the people had trouble believing it because this is Jesus, like the kid that grew up down the street from them forever. What do you mean it's you? I knew you when you were, you know, trying to learn to ride the equivalent of a bike, whatever that was. And so like, how could it be you? Other people doubted because they were feeling like, this is great. We're on the end team. You're one of our guys. Like we're going to have special favor. And when Jesus said, no, no, that's not how God's kingdom worked. They were pretty mad. In any case, the whole hometown drove him out of town. So Jesus has been rejected in his hometown and returns to Capernaum, which was that larger town on the Sea of Galilee, this lake town. And I'm just going to give you some highlights of what started happening and just get the sense of this, this swirling group of activities. I really encourage you to read between uh, Luke 4 through 6 if you, if you haven't read or I, anyway, if you want to like catch up to where we are, sit in that a little bit this week. But here's some of the stuff that's happening. People are amazed at his teaching, and they say, because, the reason they're amazed, because his words had authority. How could they know that words had authority? We've all heard convincing speakers or very charismatic speakers who sort of sweep us up. But there's something different when they're saying his words had authority. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was speaking and stuff happened. The Spirit of God was upon him, just like Luke said. Jesus said sternly to a demon, come out, and the demon did. His words had authority. He rebuked with his words the fever that had Simon Peter's mother so sick. He rebuked a fever verbally, and the fever left her. Now we're getting into the physical realm here, like nature, nature's laws. It left with his words. What's going on? Jesus kept going around healing sickness and rebuking demons, and crowds were noticing, of course. His words had that kind of authority. And so what Luke recorded earlier was proving to be true. The spirit of the Lord was upon this person, Jesus, and things were happening. Power of God on display. So this is where we've been in this gap between last Sunday and this Sunday. We also see in this gap from between our two weeks readings, a lot of times Luke records that Jesus goes away to a solitary place to pray. We see that as part of his spiritual practices, his rhythms of grace, that that includes withdrawing to be alone in solitude with the Father. And then he goes into synagogues uh, time and time again. And he teaches throughout Judea in the synagogues. And we hear again ongoing tense in 5.16, Luke says, often he withdrew to pray alone. And then he kept returning to the city. So we're seeing this pattern, right? Let me get uh, away with the father and come back for the ministry. This is, this is a rhythm in the life of Jesus. And as this is going on, we then see this moment where Jesus raises the bar. He's teaching in a home full of people and a group of friends can't even get to Jesus. It's so packed. 
during this powerful teaching with words that had authority. Since they can't get to him, they open up the thatched roof and they drop their friend who is paralyzed, a paralytic. They drop him on a mat down to Jesus so that Jesus can heal him. I mean, what faith of friends, what love of friends. They will go to no ends to see this healing, this amazing stuff happen to their buddy. And as they do that, do you know what Jesus says first? Your sins are forgiven. That's raising the bar. He also heals the man. But I want to go back to the raising of the bar. Jesus has just said, your sins are forgiven. There's an escalation of divine authority for somebody to make a claim like that. We've now gone beyond the natural and even spiritual realm into this really amazing divine moment. If this is not true, if he's not the son of God, that's a huge no-no to say that. So people, of course, are noticing. And he starts making very real enemies. The topic of enemies is what we will get to in a minute, but I want you guys to feel it a little bit here. The temperature is rising and Jesus is talking amidst people who 100% would put themselves on the list of enemy number one. I wanna be enemy number one of a guy who makes that claim. Jesus has very real enemies. It is not concept, concept for him, it's very real. At the same time, his following is growing, right? He's going around town. He's dining with sinners. Again, this is a real big no-no in Jewish custom. But he's doing it. He's hanging out, table fellowship with the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. But he's doing these things that are like blowing people's mind. He picks a tax collector, a Jewish person working for the Roman government. And they are known to sort of skim a little off the top, right? So this is, this is what would be way up there in the list of Jewish enemies, somebody who would be like a traitor to their own people, right? He picks one of them as a disciple. Jesus is making waves. We feel the temperature rising in this whole talk about enemies. And there's really, there's temperature rising on both sides. So people who are offended by this behavior, they, the words and the actions of Jesus, the things he's choosing to do and say, they're beside themselves. They have no category for this guy and what is going on. At the same time, what about the people who've been released from demonic oppression? What about the guy who had to be lowered down through a roof because his body didn't work, who suddenly could get up and walk? What about people witnessing this stuff? What about people whose social station in life seems beyond repair and Jesus shows up to eat with them? What about those people? They have no category for this either, but they're liking it. They want to follow it. They want to learn more. Something really cool is going on. And out of this growing group of people who are following Jesus because of this finding out more, something big is happening here, Jesus picks 12. Not based on their pedigree. Not based on the fabulous things they've done. We don't even hear much about some of them, right? So out of this group, for reasons unknown to us, he just picks 12 people. And he calls those people a special people, his 12 disciples. Now, remember last week and the weeks preceding, we've talked about this. There's really intentional Old Testament echoes that would be especially familiar to you if you were an early reader, especially a Jewish person who had spent their life in the ancient scriptures that we call the Old Testament. So when you find out that Jesus picked 12 people without a whole lot of purpose behind those individuals, What's that echo? Well, we know when God called the 12 sons of uh, 
of Israel to come forward and become the 12 tribes, right? Those sons, did they do special things that others? Nope, they were just 12 sons. They were the guys, they became the tribes. They'd been picked by God to become a holy 12. And now Jesus picks a holy 12 out of this group of followers, not by merit, just like uh, the 12 sons of Israel were done so by birth, by God's choice. And so with these 12 now picked, that's what's happened between last week and this week. We and the crowds following and you feel like the raising temperature and the very real enemies who are not loving what's going on. This is where Jesus starts in to the sermon that we are studying today. I'm going to start reading in the NIV version at Luke 6, starting in verse 20. This is the start of this particular sermon to a crowd the large crowd, including now the 12 who have been picked. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. With that, for that reason, if that's happening, blessed are you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how the ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So this, this kind of list, this blessing and woe thing, um, this also, remember, we've just had that Old Testament echo of the 12, the 12 people uh, being picked by God. We have that Old Testament echo, and then he starts into this sermon. I love how N.T. Wright sums this. He's talking about what this echo would mean. With this new, renewed Israel the 12 in front of him now, along with the rest, Jesus gives them this own version of this same covenant that would have been echoed and everybody would have known from the Old Testament. But this is a radical version of it. God's doing something new. As Jesus had emphasized in the synagogue, like we talked about last week in Nazareth in chapter four, he's fulfilling his promises at last. And this will mean good news for all the people who haven't had good news for a really long time. The poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are hated. He's speaking blessing on them. It's not that there's anything great or virtuous about being poor or hungry in and of itself. But what is happening in this blessing and woes is Jesus is saying, listen, they all know the, the way that their world is working here. And it includes a lot of injustice, right? When injustice is reigning, like it was in this moment when Jesus was preaching, when justice is reigning, the world will have to be turned right side up again. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey guys, things are about to get turned right side up the way that God intended for justice and kingdom to happen. It will provoke opposition. Jesus promises that in this sermon. It's going to happen. Opposition from people who like things the way they are because they're comfortable now and they don't want an upheaval of the injustice, right? And so that's what he's saying. So this message is a promise and a warning a blessing and a curse. And it mirrors that blessing and curse, same content of the covenant that was given to the 12 uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of blessing and curse and language there that has to do with like, are you gonna be a people who are ready for God's kingdom to come and flip some stuff upside down? Get ready, get ready for that to happen. And he knew the reaction would be the same. Not everybody was gonna be happy. Everything's getting turned upside down. So for those who are blessed, 
we maybe don't want things or feel blessed. We don't want things to turn upside down, but it's all about justice coming to reign. That's what this, this blessing and curse language is all about. And listen, our group of listeners in this moment are probably very largely weighed towards that first group of people. And then Jesus says from the passage Lucas read this morning, but to you who are listening, I say this. And I like this. There's sort of this sense like if you're still hanging on, if I still have your attention after I just said all that, let me keep teaching you because you're ready to hear about a kingdom of justice that's getting ready to get flipped to God's way. If you're still listening to me, I got more to say about it. And so it's kind of cool what he talks about. The first part of this sermon being commending the way of obedience in the way of discipleship, right? The sense of things getting turned upside down. And now he goes into the second section that we're focusing on today. And that's the implications of discipleship. If you're still listening, here are the implications of living this blessed way in the new kingdom. There's going to be some implications on how we treat other people. So Jesus continues, 27. But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Don't let familiarity make these words seem like, yeah, it's a really cool sentiment that Jesus is all about. You guys, that's a huge ask. I love that Sam and Shannon wrote that prayer of the people this morning that actually made us visualize someone. I think that set us up to not just hear this as a nice Christian phrase that people say. Do you know how radical, if you're still listening to me, love your enemies. Whoa, what? That's way bigger of an ask. Don't let familiarity make this sound soft and fuzzy. Because the implications here to the people listening in this audience, this congregation, if you would, it's not quite time probably to call them that, we're not talking about distant political enemies, the Roman Empire. And yes, they're under the Roman Empire's thumb. But like these people are living in a society where their enemies are also people very real around them. And that's where his sermon goes, is to gritty, hands-on, personal interactions. So this isn't just concept. We're going to get really real here. An enemy that's depicted as actively cursing and mistreating you. That guy. That's who we're talking about. This isn't just theory. The, The dude who slaps your face, the one who takes your coat Hands-on gritty enemies here. So consider this for these recipients, this command to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. It's not hypothetical, but to take for the norm for those who in fact are hated and scorned. Who are the people that they need to look at and now listen to these words of Jesus? Now listen, the concept isn't altogether new. It's just radically amplified. Because we all know the law of Moses is given in Leviticus 19.18, which has now become a golden rule. You probably heard it regardless of faith background, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule translates that as do unto others as you would have done to you. That's a really nice bar. It's a good thing. That golden rule is in our world for a reason. It's a lovely concept. But Jesus takes that and says something radical, not just like do to others what you'd want them to do to you. Treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. Now it's your enemy. And do the very best thing you can imagine that would be an amazing blessing for you. What would you love? Go do that for your enemy. This just took the golden rule and gave it a really serious change to do good to those who hate you. We're going to spend a couple minutes here with the two specific examples that Jesus gives, because we can misunderstand these. The slap and the coat. 
We're going to talk about the slap in the coat for a minute. Jesus specifically says to, uh, if somebody slaps you, give them the other cheek. Someone takes your coat, give them your shirt too. We got to talk about this for a minute. In our world, these can sound a lot like, be a good Christian, grin and bear it when others mistreat you, take a beating, be a doormat. And that's not true. This is so much more subversive than that, you guys. Let me have a minute to unpack it a little more. Matthew's gospel, oh wait, I have to stop and say this. Sometimes words in the Bible get misused by people who actually have some evil intentions in their heart. If you or anyone you know is being mistreated physically or verbally, especially, not only, but if people are using these verses to tell you that you should stay in an abusive situation of any kind, they are misusing scripture, please reach out. The family of God is here to help, whether it's you or one of your neighbors who needs to get out of oppressive misuse of scripture, we are here. But I want us to be equipped to know what these words really mean, because it doesn't mean if someone smacks you, continue to take the beating without talking about it. That's misuse. We will not allow that kind of misuse. Okay, this is way, it's way sassier than that, you guys. So here's what we're gonna talk about, what it really means. Matthew 5, 39 actually specifies if someone smacks you in the right cheek. Sorry, left-handers, it's a right-handed dominant society. So we are going to, for a moment, make the assumption that you are right-handed. Think about this, take your right hand and you need to slap me in this cheek. How do you do that? You do it like this. It's a backhand. And I know that in their culture, as well as ours, we know that a backhanded slap is so derogatory that we've actually given it a derogatory name that I will not repeat. We know the backhanded slap means something culturally. And that's what is happening here. Somebody backhanded slaps you. Well, that wouldn't be very nice, would it? But culturally, people had the right to backhand slap slaves, children and women especially, if they did something that they didn't like, you could publicly backhand someone and be perfectly culturally in your right to teach them and to correct them. That was a culturally accepted move to do the backhanded slap in certain situations. So when Jesus says, if you've been slapped like that, we already have a uh, demeaning, Gesture. There's, there's already been a power dynamic that's been established and you are on the losing end of that power dynamic. So what happens if the person of lower stature gets that slap and offers the left cheek? Slap me if you must, but with dignity. Slap me if you must, but as an equal. Slap me without that condemning thing, and I will not come back at you. Do you know what that does to the slapper? Like, that makes you feel really, I don't know, I think like a jerk. Like, if you continue slapping someone who's just given you their other cheek and making that stance, that puts up a mirror to your face. Like, would you slap that person who isn't putting up their dukes in response? and is actually taking that kind, that's a subversive move, you guys. That is not, thank you, sir, may I have another. That is totally different than that. There's a subversive move in that. What about the coat? So there's actually law. Let's say that, um, all right, we're going to have Dan and Bob because, well, we're just going to have two random people. Dan and Bob. Dan owes Bob money. There's actually a law that says, and Dan doesn't have it to pay back. There's a law that says Bob can take Dan's coat 
but he can't take his, the other garment because we can't leave Dan out in the cold. But Bob can have the coat because he needs to have something. But the law was like, don't go too far. Still care enough for Dan that he's not out in the cold naked, right? So Jesus is saying, if, so, if, if Bob takes Dan's coat, because he, he has the right, Dan is nothing. Bob has the right to the coat. Like somebody has the right to do the backhanded slap. He's got the right to do it. Bob does. But then if Dan says, take my shirt too, what happens in that scene? Bob's standing there with a pile of clothes in his hands, and Dan is embarrassingly naked, and Bob's allowing it. Bob's allowing it. If they say, that's subversive, you guys. Give him everything, and he will be standing there. Just think, I think of how, I think it, Paul says, like, be, kill him with so much kindness. It was like heaping burning coals. I always thought that was the strangest thing. I think what it does is it, it holds up a mirror. Are you going to be that guy? Are you going to be that woman who, like, keeps going with the rights that you have until Dan's standing there naked and cold and you've got a pile of clothing in your head? Are you sure? Are you sure that's who you want to be? That's the kind of thing that's happening. It's not just like keep taking it. You have the right to do it, but like where does the cycle end? That's what the mirror says. How far do you want to go? I love in, uh, Sam gave this quote from Martin Luther King. It's in, it's in our practices for this week. Peace is not merely the absence of some negative force, war, tensions, confusion, but it's the presence of a positive force, justice, goodwill, and power of the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying in this part is like, this is the negative force is like, yeah, you have the right to slap me. You have the right to my coat, but like how far are you gonna take this? And the stance that Jesus is saying is to actually be a positive force, to kind of hold up the mirror and be like, are you sure? Where does this cycle end? Where does the cycle of getting even or taking revenge, even if I did something wrong, like where does that cycle end? Are you sure about this? And Jesus forces, if you follow this pattern, Jesus forces a pause. Yeah, I mean, think about that. In either of those examples, the other person standing on the, on the other end, whether it's the left cheek or the pile of clothes, right? You have a forced pause because culturally you're like, what is this response? But a forced pause like that calls for perspective and opening the door to some other way because you see like, man, that, this is like, you got culturally shook up. I have a super silly example. Are you guys gonna be patient with a super silly example? But it's really stuck with me and so I like it. I was driving and I was totally in my right to go in my lane and stop at the red light. I was doing something that I had every right to do. I just wasn't being very observant. And the oncoming lane was all stuck because of a delivery truck. And so they were all waiting for someone to be gracious enough to stop before their right to move forward and just let a whole bunch of people pass, okay? I wasn't paying attention and I was, it wasn't very thoughtful of me. I hadn't done anything wrong. I was in my right, okay, right? So I drive up and I find myself at a red light and I look at this guy next to me and I suddenly realize, they're all just stuck waiting here while I'm waiting. I've done, I just realized it. And you know what he does, you guys? Culturally, what could he have done? Culturally, he could have given me a hand gesture that would have indicated that I was being selfish, which I was. I was in my right, but it wasn't kind. Culturally, he could have said bad words to me and we all would have been like, yeah, that lady was a total this and that. But culturally, that would have been fine. He could have even gone to the culture. Have you guys ever seen someone engaging in road rage? It's super scary, but like culturally, our world accepts extreme behavior. You know what he did to me? He just looked at me and he went like this. <laughs> and I was like, I oh, know, because he held up the mirror and I 
was like, you're right. Like a thumbs down on, on Facebook or in a text message. Like it, it, it hit me. And I know it's silly, but I share it because like culturally, what extreme can you take to get revenge on someone who's wronged you? But like what happens if somebody forces a pause and instead you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I know, it was totally, like, can I reverse? I just knew it. I was, it was a mirror. And that's what Jesus is saying, like, force a pause and make the person think. And I think that that's the kind of moment that it, this is not just keep taking it. It's silently saying, like, are you sure? There must be a different way. World's cycle of revenge and anger, evil begetting evil, like, there has to be an end. Is this who you want to be? It's a pause. And remember this, you guys, Jesus, way, way more extreme than my awesome thumbs down guy. I like really liked that move. But way more extreme, like Jesus lived this out. Peter, one of the 12, one of the disciples, he later would recall in 1 Peter 2, 23, he said, when they hurled insults, insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Like Jesus lived this out. And here's what I want to say. When we think about these subversive words of Jesus, what Jesus did, Jesus did this. Jesus turned the other cheek as they beat him. He allowed them to take his clothes to the point that they were casting lots for them. And he was naked to the point where they could uh, whip his back and cut into his flesh. He did this. And when Jesus did it, that's God doing it. God did the thing that is happening that we are being asked to do here in the most extreme way that at the point when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was a Roman soldier who could even see. Look at this subversive witness. This must be the son of God. I can't even believe it. This man was the son of God, the witness to the extreme that the divine had gone. This shocking message of a life that lived this way we sit here on this side of history and say, when Jesus says these words, we can do it this much because God's self did it extremely, more than we can even imagine. This is what God is like. God did this thing for us. This isn't a rule book, some new group of rules that Jesus is giving to the disciples at all. It's literally a new way of living because we've received from a God who did this for us first. That's how we are able to even consider a love like this. Anyone who has received the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus knows this. And all of a sudden, loving your enemy makes a whole new kind of uh, equipping tone. When we remember Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about loving your enemies. We were with enmity by our very nature with God, a holy God. So what did God do? Loved his enemies enough to send Christ. And Christ walked through all of the things in order to make a path forward. And we stand forgiven. Christ asks us, therefore, to be people of forgiveness. And that can be really hard. So the love of enemies concept goes on in uh, 637. Do not judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. All of this, all of this is around the same subject. It's that shock when somebody forces a pause to end the seemingly endless cycle of evil or retaliation or vengeance that we have the right to all of that, that cycle in society will never end. There's no, there's no limit. It's insatiable in its thirst until somebody can pause and hold up the mirror and say, shock value, I'm ending the cycle right here. 
I was trying to think of an example that could really taste the radical nature of that kind of forgiveness, which we talk about having received from Jesus. And yes, amen, we have. But what does it look like to be radical people of forgiveness like that? I was trying to think of an example that ended such a, uh, such a intense way. I had my silly little thumbs down example, but what was it? So I had the delight this past week of working from our little cabin in the woods with a group of friends, uh, women friends of mine from my, my, my seminary sisters. They came together, flew in from Arizona, drove in from far away, and six of us cozied up, brought out a million books, and we worked on work all day, and we laughed and talked all night, and we told stories. And stories are just a beautiful way for us to be able to really taste something kind of like in our gut. One of my seminary sisters shared this story, and I was like, that is a radical forgiveness that I haven't had to engage in. And it had to do with her mother, her mother, father, and siblings, actually, but she was talking specifically about her mom. They had grown up in a church community that... um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I think has even since been defined as a cult, uh, where they were not allowed contact with anybody who wasn't in their community. And so this was to the point where this woman, her mother, they they thought it was love. Uh, The church told them it was love to cut off all ties because that would maybe bring the person back in to draw off her family. And, And my friend just felt like something was wrong here. I can't be a part of this. She moved away and the family cut off all ties with her, and she was married, and she was a young wife, and they had babies, and she was a new mom, and she, for all intents and purposes, had no mom to lean on for anything. Mom had completely cut her off. I mean, can you imagine just the hurt? Not, uh, there's one hurt of losing a mom, there's another one of like mom turning away and leaving, and choosing to go away and not be there in those times in your life, right? And one day, literally out of the blue, mom called. In my mind at this point, I was like, I would have had years to think about all of the things that I would want to say, the hurt, the disappointment, even the anger. Like there'd be so much welling up inside of me if I picked up that phone after years and there was mom's voice. But mom's voice said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. And they had a lot to talk about, but my friend made a choice in that moment and she forgave her. She's like, well, I I forgive you. Now we've probably got some work to do to rebuild, but like that, do you see how a cycle of hurt and awfulness can be just stopped in its tracks? Doesn't mean there's still work to be done, but like that's the kind of forgiveness that's like, it's, it's, it's the stop in the tracks kind of forgiveness. To have a moment like that, it's the hold up the mirror and say, okay, this is going to be hard, but we are going to stop the cycle, the endless cycle of of evil begetting evil, of hatred begetting hatred. It's stopping the cycle in a radical way. N.T. Wright, again, when I think, uh, says some things that like had me thinking, thinking about the crowd following Jesus, right? His whole life, Jesus's whole life was one exuberant of exuberant generosity, giving all he had to give to everyone who needed it. That's what Jesus is doing. He was speaking of what he knew, extravagant love of the Father. He was spending it, and he's just saying, live, live a lavish human life in response. Give love when it's not deserved. Forgive even when it's hard. And then when I think about Jesus even going all the way to the cross, he didn't only love his friends when he went to that cross, you guys. He was loving his enemies. 
The people who had left him, who had betrayed him, even on the way to the cross, he forgave them. He did that act as a way of reconciling them. Like he did it not just for the ones who were his close friends. He did it for the ones who had been even his enemies. He was the true embodiment of what God's character is. And he's calling us to be little mini embodiments in the little pockets of places where we can do the same. The reward that he talks about isn't about worldly advantage, but instead the reward that God will give for people who are going to walk around as disciples, reflecting the character of the God that we love and serve. This is a reflection, you guys. This isn't a big ask. This is like little mini ways that we can radically think, what does it look like to be placed in this spot in the building like Shannon was talking about with these people around me and be just like a little tiny mini version that reflects this amazing God that I love and serve. I can be like a mini me of this in a little tiny pocket of beauty and of kingdom inbreaking. Romans 12, 21, don't be overcome by evil, but, let, but overcome evil with good. So the goal isn't to be passively exploited by others, but actively combat evil with something good. So then all of a sudden, the golden rule as described by Jesus isn't like do as what you're, you would want done. It's do as God did. It, it raises the bar exponentially, of course, but, but by God's spirit, we can do that, you guys. What does this mean? God's already done all this. Release of debt without payment? God did that already. Once you've experienced it, you can give others the shocking foretaste of radical love and forgiveness, undeserved love and forgiveness, stopping cycles of hatred with those little mirrors that just stop and say, like, we gotta rethink this. Because this cycle thing, it's not gonna go anywhere. We've got something else. Even if I have the right to get even, and it shows the just divine love of God who, who laid down every right, you guys. That's God's self laying down every right to do this first unto us who were once enemies and are no more. Our brothers and sisters to Christ now because of the love that was displayed first to us. I want us to spend a little time about thinking really seriously about what it looks like in the exact place that we are to be little pockets of like cycle breakers, you know? Cycle interrupters, mirror holders, people who will say that we, empowered by the Spirit of God, might be able to just do a pause and show love to an enemy, to show uh, forgiveness where it's undeserved, to choose not to judge when we really want to sometimes, right? But like to choose that that's not for us and instead that we just are gonna show love and grace and forgiveness because we know that that was given first to us. It's little tiny glimmers, you guys. These aren't always big, big moments that are dramatic. They're little glimmers of radical love. And little glimmers of radical love matter and they add up into kingdom inbreaking moments. And so we want to be we want to be participants in that kind of that kind of little pocket of beauty and love. Jesus, we love you and we hear these words with fresh ears that you're talking about something that is um, hard. And I just, I thank you. I'm so humbled to think like there's not one thing that you didn't already go through that you ask us to do. And when I think about the way that you went through it, God, I'm humbled um, to know that your son walked these steps in such a radical way. And I confess that Jesus, you, you give an example that I just struggled to even think of living up to a 10th of that in my little pockets. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move, empower, equip, 
that you would be the one to show the mirror first to us so that we can then um, give that grace out and spend it to others. Help us to respond to these words that you've given us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.